Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I am the Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites. Today, I am joined by the great Andy Belton. He is our senior analyst covering European investment grade and high yield construction and building materials. And those are the sectors we are going to talk about today. They're pretty benign, nothing going on in these sectors. So this will be an easy conversation, right, Andy? Yeah, really quick, very simple. Should be done in about five minutes, Winnie. Perfect. Love to hear it. So let's with the icebreaker. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic credit market sector specific data for the rest of the year, what would you be looking for and why? I'd love to avoid the home run of saying macroeconomic data, but I don't think that's the correct approach, to be honest. Let's remember building materials and the construction value chain. It's very much a macro driven sector. There is a little bit of a variation in the fact that infrastructure end use or public construction tends to be more levered to government budgets and things like the avoidance of busting your debt ceiling. However, let's remember the prime driver of demand for building materials is the level of construction activity. And construction activity, of course, in turn is very heavily influenced by the wider macro environment. Current high interest rates that we're seeing on both sides of the Atlantic, they do remain a strong headwind, not just to new home construction, but also as a break to any recovery that we might otherwise have seen in the commercial real estate space. So to answer your question, I'd love to see how 2023 is going to turn out, not just in terms of total construction trends, but also in Europe and in the US but also in terms of the level of inflation that we might see for our European investment grade building materials credits. Now, if we look at lagging data on European construction, we can see that at the moment it's running about one to 2% down. This is data at the end of April. And if we look at construction PMI data, for example, we can see it's negative territory for not just the Eurozone in total, but also a number of individual countries like France, Italy, and Germany. And interestingly enough, only the UK remains in the marginal positive territory in construction terms. And if we fast forward that and think about projections for 23 as a whole, they are currently suggesting a flat construction trajectory here in Europe for the next two years before we see any semblance of a recovery. And that's not really until 2025. Now, one point to make is that these projections are somewhat stale. And we are expecting to get a little sneak peek into what actually 2023 might be already looking like when Euroconstruct publishes its updated forecasts for European construction, which should hit the tapes in about 10 to 15 days. So we'll look out for that and maybe have, we will have definitely some communication on top of this podcast to see how actually 2023 is looking like and to see also how the latest forecasts for the end of the year are. I think if we think about the US, of course, 
it's on a slightly different trajectory. The US is currently expected to decline in construction terms by about 2.6% in total in 2023. The big drag, of course, here is the home building space, where we expect to see an 8% fall in the residential construction activity. Now, I think the wild card is the impact that the banking turbulence that we saw in the first quarter will have on the availability of funding from the banking sector to the commercial real estate space. And remember that there is a nation recovery in non-residential construction. For example, I think expectations are for about 90 basis points of rise in non-residential construction activity after the kind of declines that we saw in 21-22, which were about 7 and 5% respectively. And of course, we have to layer on top of that the change in working from home trends and really sort of secular movements like that, which are affecting the longer term demand for commercial real estate space. Now, interestingly, in contrast to Europe, the position in public and infrastructure spending is a little bit more clear in the US than it is for Europe. And the reason why, just in case you wonder why I'm talking about the US, is that for the European investment grade building materials names, the US typically accounts for somewhere between 25 and 50% of their revenue bases. So it's not quite so simple as saying European credits exposed to European macro. It's actually European credits are exposed to both the US and the European macro. And in the, the US, in terms of public infrastructure, I think expectations for 2023 are very much steady as she goes. Let's hope we can navigate the, the, the debt ceiling issue. And then we obviously we have a presidential election in 2024. So that's really going to be the key driver of at least demand for new public infrastructure. But we have to remember that we've got the benefits of the Investment in Infrastructure and Jobs Act. And that's really going to start to kick in in infrastructure, probably the back end of 23 and the early part of 24. So I think overall, we're going to have a pretty hard landing in the US in 2023. But, and this is an interesting contrast to Europe, there's going to be a very quick bounce back next year. So a hard landing 23, recovery 24, and further growth in 25, particularly fueled by the public sector, whereas in Europe, you've basically got stagnation in construction terms for the next few years. Well, you told me that this was going to be an easy podcast, and we're already at five minutes. So <laughs> I think that this is going to be a lot more interesting than we originally gave ourselves credit for. Yeah, the B-shaped recovery conversation coming back in the U.S., giving me some flashbacks to the old COVID debates and that more stagnation type outcome, which is really what we've been calling for in Europe. And honestly, the market and data have kind of surprised us across the board in Europe lately with things coming in a bit stronger than anticipated. So it's an interesting difference in terms of kind of the bottom not quite being as low, but also that lower climb out into recovery. So given all those moving pieces, this is a lot to make sense of. What is your sector recommendation? What are you telling investors to do in construction and building materials right now? Yeah, I guess I would tailor my answer in two different ways. One for building materials, and there's a little bit of a nuance in the construction part of the value chain. In Europe, we actually have an underperform on our investment grade European building materials space. And as a reminder to the previous podcast, where I talked about US building materials, there we have a market perform. And that's partly because in the US, you have the same construction fundamentals. You still have some pretty heavy headwinds, but you'll have about an eight basis point surplus to the index. Whereas in Europe, 
we have a 30 basis points discount to the index. So it's a fundamentally different position in terms of the risk reward equation. And this underperformed fundamental recommendation on building materials, as I've almost basically answered, it's a mix of a fundamental call and a relative value call. If we think about the fundamental situation I discussed in your first question, the outlook for the construction macro fundamentals, which are pretty tough in 23 in both the US and in Europe, both of which are big drivers of our European building materials credits. And if actually, if we think about the takeaways from the first quarter earnings season, it's generally confirmed what we have seen through the sector in the last 12 months. And that's really of single digit increases in revenues, but these are solely driven by double digit product price increases. Um, at the same time, we've seen mid to high single digit decline in volume. So you've got a straight away a disconnect between you're selling less, but you're selling that smaller volume at a much higher price. And that's providing a little bit of protection to margins. At the same time, we are seeing cost inflation just easing back a little bit in Europe, particularly that which is related, of course, to the energy complex, where we've seen quite a significant reduction in spot prices for things like gas and electricity. So cost inflation is perhaps easing off, but it still does remain a headwind. And if we think about the profit picture in the first quarter for my names, it's a little bit opaque. Two of the names didn't provide any profit numbers. Holcim's margins actually fell back and Heidelberg Cement's uh, margin improvement in the first quarter was really a recovery from a horrendous performance in the first quarter of last year. So it's a very low comparison base. Now, having said that, we've got this margin pressure that we've seen already in the first quarter, and we expect that to continue throughout the rest of the year. Sector balance sheets do remain in pretty good shape. Overall, we have sector leverage at about 1.4 times at the moment. And if we think back to what happened as we entered into COVID in early 2020, the balance sheets were more like two times in terms of leverage. M&A does remain quite active in the building materials space, but it's pretty much self-financing. So at the moment, we don't expect significant upwards pressure on leverage because at the moment, a number of the big credits are using non-strategic divestment funds to fund reinvestment into more strategically attractive areas of their business. So you've got this mix of macro and operating headwinds offset by some pretty solid cash generation and some pretty strong balance sheets. But as I mentioned at the beginning of my narrative, this is matched by a spread profile that's 30 basis points inside the index. And this is numbers that were relevant at the end of April. And when I talk to clients about the space, I think it's fair to say that there are many PMs who do like the odd single name in building materials, but they do struggle to allocate funds to the sector overall, given the fact that you've got this really tight spread profile. Now, of course, this doesn't stop them getting very much heavily involved in new issues on the rare occasion when we do see any new issuance activity. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it does mean that it's very difficult to seek out opportunities in the secondary market in building materials. Great. So the mix of pricing versus volume, how long can that last? How do you feel about the outlook for that? You've asked the $10 million question. And it's one which is completely counterintuitive, of course, because why should you be able to continue to charge higher prices when you're actually selling less to your customers? And the answer actually lies in the structure of the building material space. If you think about the two big parts of the construction value chain, the contractors, the guys who actually build the assets, it's incredibly competitive. It's very regional. It doesn't generate particularly high margins. 
and the cash flow profiles of that activity are very, very patchy. So it's very, very risky end of the construction value chain. Conversely, if you think about the building materials credits, whether they be in Europe or the US, it's very much an oligopolistic market. You've got an awful lot of capacity that is controlled by a very small number of credits. Now, cement is not something you take from one region and you export it and you sell it to another. What you do end up with is very, very big global credits that have a number of different positions in very small regional markets. And in those small regional or even country markets, they tend to have very strong positions, very strong control of the market. So they're very much price setters rather than price takers. And that is basically the, the reason why they can continue to charge higher prices when they're actually selling less. So what you tend to find is that pinch point comes at the smaller end. So the smaller producers, the smaller cement credits, the smaller building, building materials credits partially get squeezed. And the end customer, the contractor, he's the guy in the middle that gets the most squeezed. So it's really moving value from one part of the value chain, the construction end, to the actually the building materials part of the chain. So our friend and colleague, Glenn, who's always going on about Bob the Builder in the UK, really feeling the squeeze, you would generally agree with that assessment based on I your think comment. It, I think it's fair to say, Winnie, that Bob the Builder's on a diet. <laughs> poor, poor Bob the Builder. I hope things get better for him. So you previewed new issue activity a bit, kind of highlighting that, you know, it's a little bit hard to build positions in the primary market. Is that going to remain the case? What are you expecting in terms of new issue? Are we going to see consolidation of these smaller issuers who are facing trouble? I think we've got to remember that in building materials, we've seen an awful lot of consolidation in the last 10 to 15 years. And ironically, those of us like yourself and myself who were present at the time of the global financial crisis, that was a very, very heavy period of consolidation in building materials. And that's when you had an awful lot of debt-funded M&A activity and that you really ended up with three, four, five really big cement and building materials groups that control most of the sector. So I think an awful lot of the headline M&A, the big deals, are probably already done. Does that mean there's not any M&A activity at all and therefore not any potential demand for issuance? No, it doesn't. I think what we're seeing actually is more of what I call portfolio churning. So a lot of the bigger cement credits, they are selling the investments and disinvesting from parts of the world that they don't view as either strategic or profitable in the longer term. And they're using those funds to reinvest in areas where they think there's more profit or strategic benefit. I'll give you an example, Holcim. Holcim has recently retrenched from the whole of Southeast Asia and is also sold out and divested its Brazilian operations. That provided a war chest of about 7 billion US dollars, which Holcim is then using to reinvest in the area which it really wants to expand, which, which of course is the United States. So in that sense, the US is the new black in terms of regional expansion within building materials. And so what that means is that actually M&A activity is not really going to be much of a driver of new issuance in building materials. Unfortunately, because there's nothing I like better than getting up in the morning and trying to pump out a new issue note by 10 o'clock in the morning. If we think about refinancing needs in the space, Unfortunately, that's another reason not to get too excited. Most of the sector debt maturity curve is well skewed to the longer end. And there's really only a small amount of debt that's falling due in 2023. If we kind of reverse and think back about what was the case at the beginning of January 23, there was only about one and a half billion euros of bond falling due within 2023. 
Now, just under 1 billion of that has already been pre-financed by Sangaban in January. So we're almost done in terms of 2023 refinancing. If we think about 2024 for the sector, there's about just under 4 billion. Some of that does actually come very early in 24. So there might be a little bit of cheeky pre-financing as we get towards the end of 23. But unfortunately, I don't think we see refinancing as a major source of issuance in building materials. So I think at the end of the day, we're going to see some potential refinancing, but not tons. There is a little bit of nuance, however. In the, I mentioned Wholesim is repositioning towards the US. CRH, which is the other pick that we have in the space, they're already very much entrenched in the US, where they generate about three quarters of their EBITDA from North America. Both of these credits do have some mix of a euro curve and a dollar curve. But I think as Wholesim particularly is a lot more aggressive in terms of M&A activity in 2023 in the US, we could see a little bit of maybe refinancing of euro-denominated debt with a US-denominated debt. And CRH has always had pretty much a 50-50 split between euros and dollars. But again, the CRH is very much trying to embed itself a lot more in North America and the US. And in fact, CRH is seeking to switch its primary listing from Dublin to the New York Stock Exchange. So I think as that process evolves, there could well be further activity from CRH just looking to increase the proportion of debt in its balance sheet to form a more natural hedge to the geographies in which it generates the cash flow. Yeah, come on down to the U.S. markets. We're always looking for something new to talk about. So wait, does that mean you won't have to have your new issue notes out by 10 a.m. Europe time? You'll be able to linger a little bit longer given the time change? It could well be giving me a little bit of a delay in terms of the deadline, which will, of course, be really nice. I should mention something else. One thing I did mention when I was talking about issuance is green issuance. And if we think and this is maybe where Europe differs quite substantially to the US, the whole concept of ESG and green and sustainability of driven financing is very much more embedded in the European markets than it is in the US. So I think as we go through 2023 and 24, I think a number of these credits do have quite stringent emissions targets. And we've already started to see names like Wholesim, like Heidelberg Cement, Semex in, in high yield, start to do sustainability-linked financing or indeed fully-fledged uh, fully green financing. So that's a little bit of a wild card, which could hopefully give a little bit of a more thicker nature to a new issuance volume in 23. Yeah, that's an interesting point. One thing that has come up a couple of times from clients is the concept of a green issue consent solicitation. So turning a dirty bond into a, a green bond. Have you seen that all in your sector? Do you think that's something that could come down the pipe? We haven't seen much of it. I think what we have seen in the space is a real rush to change sustainability from a, a, a liability to an asset, or at least a marketing tool anyway. I think there's a number of the big cement credits that are suddenly talking about the circular economy, talking about sustainability of construction, and really talking as if they're not operating in a space that has the second highest carbon footprint of any industrial sector outside of oil and gas. It sort of ranks neck and neck with, uh, with metals and mining and steel in that regard. So there is an element of marketing there, and there are a number of names that have done either green financing or sustainability-linked bonds, where the actually KPIs on which the coupon is ratcheted in the SLB tends to be 
how can I put this? It tends to be a somewhat low hurdle. So I don't think too many CFOs will be sweating about meeting their KPIs in order to keep the coupons down on the sustainability linked finance. Are you saying your CFOs are sandbagging <laughs> their expectation? <laughs> what? I think there might be an element of expectation management, which is always a good thing for a CFO. I mean, I use that strategy with my husband, so I really can't hate on the CFOs also using expectation management as a tool. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk about risks. What keeps you up at night when you're thinking about your sector? There are so many things to consider. Is it that the U.S. truly is just better and, you know, Europe is going to be in stagnation forever? What about Asia? We haven't even talked about that. What are the things that you are thinking about when you think about your sector? Yeah. And again, I just remind you that I'm talking here mostly about building materials. I mentioned before when we were talking about the sector recommendations that we only talked about building materials. We don't yet have a sector recommendation on the construction side of the investment grade space. And that's primarily because at the moment, we only have coverage of two of those names. Now, we are looking to add a further three names actually by the end of the first half. And by that point, our coverage of of the market value of investment grade construction paper will be up to about 80%. So I think in the second half of 23, we'll be thinking about what our sector recommendation might be for the construction end of the value chain. But to sort of go back to your question about what is my major worries and keeps me up at night, I think there's a couple of things. The first one is, and I'm going to use a quote from the 1992 presidential election, when there was an advisor, a special advisor to Bill Clinton, who was asked, what is really going to help him to defeat the incumbent George Bush? And I think Carver was trying to drive home, this is the chief strategist I'm talking about, they were trying to drive home the message that Bush was really out of touch with the concerns of everyday Americans. So they came up with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. I'm going to focus on the first three words of that phrase, it's the economy. Now, I've already outlined our current expectations of what US and European construction activity is going to look like. But I worry particularly about the housing market in the US and also the housing market in Europe, as well as what prospects might be for commercial real estate. And again, this is in the wake of changing workforce patterns after COVID, but also the shock that we've had in the banking system in the first half of 2023 and whether or not that actually leads a number of the big financial institutions to turn off the tap in terms of funding for commercial real estate. So these are definitely things that have got me very much slightly slightly concerned and thinking about adding to my collection of grey hairs. At the same time, and this is a very European-specific worry, I also worry about the cost inflation picture and the energy situation in Europe. Now, you know, we're seeing at the moment spot prices for gas have come down really sharply. And electricity, which is derived from gas, has also followed suit since the start of the year. At the same time, we've seen quite a significant improvement in gas gas storage levels. And so essentially, if you just think about the, the picture on the surface level, you might think, okay, energy has really gone away as a potential source of cost inflation in Europe. But let's remember that we're only one bad winter away from a much tighter situation in Europe in terms of energy supply. We are still very much levered this side of the Atlantic to Russian gas. And that does make quite a significant difference, I think, to the concept of energy self-sufficiency and the possibility of significant cost inflation headwinds. And let's think about this. It doesn't take a big stretch of the imagination to think about if President Vladimir Putin continues to suffer setbacks on the battlefields in Ukraine, 
he might be tempted to try and arrange an unexpected interruption to the gas supplies in an attempt to just remind the West that we are very much dependent on his product. So I think these are the two big things that very much keep me awake at night. Yeah, those are not small things to consider. And I was looking today on Bloomberg, the spread of mortgages in the U.S. to treasuries is at the widest level that it's been since the early 2000s, including the height of the great financial crisis when the residential housing market was truly the crux of the situation. So it is a bit unnerving to see those types of data. And then who knows what's going to happen with Russia, Ukraine. It's a very difficult thing to predict and so hard when there's so much at stake across the humanitarian and then also the economic complexes. So let's move to the micro a bit. Let's talk about trade ideas, picks, pans, carry trades, anything that you want to talk about or flag at this single name level. Yeah, sure. And I think in this discussion, I'm going to widen the conversation, widen the universe a little bit to include high yield. I think when we're talking about some of the key macro drivers, in essence, those macro drivers are in place for both the investment grade territory, but also for high yield. Obviously, what you add in high yield territory is a lot of idiosyncratic risk. And that's really where the individual credit selection comes into play. I think when we think about investment grade building materials, we have a preference for the names that are more leveraged to the US. In that sense, to quote, I think George Orwell, who talked about four legs good, two legs bad, US good, Europe bad. I mean, it's a That's a little bit of a binary phrase, but I think it does communicate the point, which is that those credits that are much more leveraged to U.S. construction, we think have a much more likely to enjoy tailwinds over the next two years. I recognize that in 2023, the U.S. is going to be actually a harder place to operate than Europe. But as we talked about in the first part of this podcast, that in Europe, we think that stagnation is going to continue, at least in construction terms for a couple of years, whereas we can see a number of potential tailwinds in the US. So with that uh, theme in mind, the first name that comes out of my mouth is CRH. It's an Irish domiciled name, but is increasingly US-led. I talked about it before in terms of CRH switching its primary listing from Dublin to the US. And that's really to make sure that their capital structure and their financing situation matches the fundamentals of the business, where you've got three quarters of their EBITDA being generated in North America, and most of that being generated in the United States. CRH is rated high triple B, and it does really remain our flight to quality credit in the building materials space, whether you're talking about in euros or dollars. And if we think about their debt stack, they have about a 50-50 split between euros and dollars, slightly more in dollars. But this is really a credit that we don't think is going to cause too many sector analysts or most importantly, PMs to lose much sleep. And we think this is an increasingly useful trait in a market that still has some inherent volatility. I know that we're very much on a tear in the last few weeks, but the markets, as you know, have very, very short-term memories. And I've been around long enough as of you to recognize that I don't think necessarily that we've seen all the volatility that we're going to see in the credit markets in 2023. So from that perspective, we think CRH is one of those credits you just put in your portfolio and then you go and do something else. That's our top pick, I would say. Our top pan in the space is Heidelberg Materials, which is a German-based construction and cement building materials and aggregates credit. And this underperform recommendation, I would say it's fundamental driven. We We think that Heidelberg has a profile. It's the weakest of what we call the big four in European investment grade building materials. At the same time as having a weak 
business profile and credit profile, if this is not compensated by the fact that spreads on Heidelberg bonds are slightly towards the wider end, but not as wide as you would like to balance a number of the risks that it carries. And when I talk about a weak credit profile, I'm talking about small market position. It's materially smaller in scale than its peers. It has a narrower geographic footprint. And in that footprint, there's a lot less exposure to the US. We don't believe that its strategy is as cogent as its peers. It has a weaker track record of being able to pass on cost inflation to the end customer through product price rises, which of course has an impact upon cash flow. And it also has higher leverage. Now, I think we have to recognize that Heidelberg had a reasonably good first quarter 23, but I think I mentioned earlier in this podcast, that was a bounce back from a very, very poor performance in the first quarter 22. And I think that's not really indicative of the underlying strength of that credit. So we have a pick and we have a pan in fundamental terms. You mentioned also carry, and this is where I switched the conversation to Switzerland and to a company called Holcim. This is a Swiss-based cement group. It's actually the largest cement business in the world outside China. And it has an increasing presence in the US. Again, I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the fact that Holcim has retrenched from big parts of the emerging markets, including Southeast Asia and India, which, in which it was very, very present, and is refocusing on the US. And that's partly because the US in construction terms is a good place to be, but it's also partly because it's refocusing in the US on roofing. And the element of roofing it's focused on is flat roofing, which has a high um, remodeling and improvement focus. In other words, it's not leveraged to new construction trends, but you get a continual flow of refurbishment business. So over the, the course of a business cycle, that profitability tends to be a lot more stable than you would see in other parts of the, of the construction and value chain. Now, Holcim is not without risk, but I would say the biggest one has been governance risk. I think Holcim has had very much of a, a headline grabbing issue with a cement plant it had in Syria and dealings that it had with a terrorist organization, ISIS. However, that issue, whilst I wouldn't underplay something which caused the Department of Justice to levy a $780 million fine, the fact that Holcim has managed to scope out its liability is, I think, a signal that, that this risk at least is containable even if it's not going away. Now, that is a risk, but that is reflected in the fact that spreads on wholesome bonds are very much towards the wider end of its peer universe. So actually, we think in wholesome, you're getting a very attractive reward for the risk that you're taking. So I think in, from that perspective, I think wholesome is probably the best carry trade that we have. If we switch the conversation to high yield, the name that we like best from a fundamental perspective is Semex. This is a Mexican cement major but also has a very strong presence, not just here in Europe, but also, in, again, in the United States. Unfortunately, Semex is very much concentrated on dollar paper. It only has one euro-denominated bond, but we do like the credit fundamentally. It's deleveraging quite so steadily and consistently from more than five times back in 2016 to the current 2.6, 2.7 times. Semex is actually targeting a return to investment grade, we don't think that that's going to happen within the next 12 months, but we think from a longer term perspective, if you think about 18 to 24 months, then actually it might be an interesting entry point into a credit that we think might be knocking on the door of investment grade towards the back end of 2024, maybe early part of 25. So Semex is, I think, is an interesting name within high yield building materials. I would say our top pan in building materials is a company called Consolis. 
this is one of that classic traditional high yield territory where you have one bonds, single product company, and it's owned by a PE sponsor. And this is essentially a company that makes precast concrete. In other words, concrete shapes that have been formed at the production site and then are transported to the, the construction site. This is a credit that's suffering, I think, real macro headwinds because it's very much focused on Scandinavia. Scandinavia at the moment is a pretty tough place to be from a construction perspective. And Consolis also has a structural cost disadvantage because it's competing with some very big companies, part two of which I mentioned before, CRH and Heidelberg. So CRH and Heidelberg, they make cement. What are the two biggest inputs into precast concrete, steel bars and concrete? And so these two massive names have an in-house source of supply for their concrete, which gives you an inherent cost advantage. So we see Consolis facing quite structural headwinds, macro headwinds, and it has leveraged north of six times. And when you add all that into a fairly active PE sponsor, we don't think that a 70 price point is an attractive entry point for that credit. So although it does provide a quite an impressive yield at, uh, at first glance, we think that the risk reward equation for Consolis is very much skewed to the downside. Let's switch now just very briefly to the construction end of the value chain. Our top pan there is WeBuild. This is an Italian construction credit. It's the largest construction company in Italy. But to be honest, we think there are very much better places for European high-yield investors to put their money at the moment. This is a very opaque credit. It's very heavily levered to Italy. It has a massively understated leverage profile and a significantly overstated profitability and liquidity profile. And it also has a high exposure to potential pressure from cost inflation because a number of the contracts that WeBuild gets involved with are basically fixed price rather than a cost-driven contract. So in other words, they don't have any ability in their construction contracts to react to increased cost inflation. They just have to accept the pressure this puts on the margin. So for WeBuild, their whole profitability in any one construction project is leveraged to their ability to forecast what costs they may be facing during the course of the construction project. And this is a credit that's had quite significant contract issues in Italy, but also in supposedly safe places like Australia. So this is a credit with a great deal of a, a, a checkered track record in terms of con contract execution. And it's also a credit with quite a significant leverage to Italian construction, which we have a very different view to the company. The company would say that Italy is a very good place to be in construction terms at the moment. But if you look at construction PMIs, they're very firmly in negative territory. And if you think about the macro situation in Italy, you've had a change of government. You have the fact that the government is one of the biggest sponsors of infrastructure construction, and the Italian government tends to be quite a late payer. So you've got a number of fundamental headwinds, which we don't believe are justified by a yield profile that is not much more than the mid 6% handle. So there is definitely a, a, a mispricing there in terms of the risk reward equation for Weeble. That was some really great trades. I like the kind of identification of the value trade versus the value trap in high yield building for sure. I think that Italy is a lovely place to be as a, a tourist, but you know, perhaps not as a construction operator for sure. So let's wrap it up with some words of wisdom advice for management teams, what would you say to those management teams trying to navigate this current economic and market environment? 
I guess I'd probably frame the advice in two ways. The first one, I'd reiterate that let's not forget the lessons of the global financial crisis. Now, we're not saying that we have expectations of any kind of risk of a, of a repeat or return to those dark days. I think our sort of core view in construction is for a, a soft recession scenario in Europe and maybe a harder landing in the US, but as I said before, a quicker bounce back the following year. But I think what the recent spout of banking volatility, I think, did highlight the fact that it doesn't take much, too many things going wrong at the same time to cause quite a significant degree of panic in the financial markets. Now, I've been at credit sites for about 16 years, and in that time, I've seen the building materials sector almost collapse around about the time of the global financial crisis. And this was simply because the sector got involved in leveraged M&A activity just in time to meet the biggest decline in construction activity that has been seen in my lifetime. For example, in Florida, you had a, a peak to trough decline in cement consumption of 60%. Over the water in Europe, in Spain, that was more like 80%. So I would just remind the sector that this is we need to make sure that M&A activity is more self-funding. And luckily, at the moment, that is currently the case. There's an awful lot of what I call portfolio churning in the sector rather than actually debt-funded expansion. But nonetheless, we do know how keen companies are to drive their share price ahead. And that an easy way to do that is to seek quite significant expansion. So I would just provide a word of caution for CFOs to remember the lessons that this is a very cyclical and there's a very volatile sector. So you really shouldn't be pumping it too much full of debt. I think the second message I'd reinforce is the need for, particularly in Europe, to focus on ESG. Now, I mentioned before that the US is the new black. Well, here in Europe, I think ESG is the new black as well. I'm not just talking about the communication of ESG targets, but actually real performance in meeting your sustainability ambitions. And it's interesting that it's increasingly apparent that the E part of ESG risk is becoming much more than just a watchword in the European debt capital market. Myself and my colleague, Laurent Verneau, who covers European chemicals, were recently returned from a trip to Scandinavia. And during that trip, we met a number of largely buy-side accounts. I think there were two key messages. One was that the, the investors in Scandinavia had a similar degree of caution about the macro picture as we did. And they were as concerned, if not more concerned, about ESG. In fact, during the discussions that we had, there were some portfolio managers who told me that building materials was just not a space that they could invest in. And that's simply because either the E or the G part of the ESG equation was just not hit in terms of screening. So it just reinforces the message that this is a sector that has quite a significant ESG footprint and that we need to make sure that we take that into account in not just our credit decisions, but actually our investment decisions. Thank you so much, Andy. Those were great words of wisdom. Always interesting to hear how investors are viewing ESG. I always find it a little tough when people are saying, well, this sector we can't invest in anymore because it's hard when sectors lose access to capital of major investors. So hopefully management teams will take your advice to heart and we will be seeing some cleaned up building product and construction companies. Thank you, Andy, for joining me today. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. If anyone has follow-up questions for me or Andy, we are always available via that Ask an Analyst function on the Credit Sites website. And we hope you enjoyed. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Winnie. Thanks all.
Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.